This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That Oh, I don't know about that. Are we recording? (laughs) I'm joined by Darren Broadfoot, who is a football writer. He's been involved in in football on radio, television, worked with the SFA, among many others. Darren, how are you? I'm grand, thanks. I'm um, working from home like the rest of the nation. Um, You join me in my spare room, and I've I've just realised how hideous the wallpaper (laughs) is. So apologies for the 80s theme from the T-shirt to the... 1980s wallpaper, which is bizarre for a house that was only built in 2012, but there you go. <laughs> and I've just realised the bottle's in shot as well, so apologies, but I've decided to have a Friday post, <laughs> post-work post pint, so let's uh, put it down here, lest I get accused of drinking on the job. In terms of um, somebody I want to speak to you about, first of all, the man who introduced me to you was Roger Mitchell. We both know him quite well, and he's, he's a man who's sort of became a world news correspondent from Italy with the COVID-19 situation. It's great, the uh, Lombardy COVID-19 correspondent. Um, I have to say I've got a lot of time for Roger, which puts the two of us in a minority, probably of two, uh, left in Scottish football. <laughs> but I... Uh, <clears throat> Roger... And I, and I say this, listen, Roger was ahead of his time. I remember as a young, uh, in, insolent uh, journalist, Roger was a, a big help to me. Uh, pick up the phone to him you could have an adult conversation with him you could disagree with him and he wouldn't take it personally um, he also wanted to do things because Roger obviously came from a, a, a music label background with Virgin so he understood the marketing of entertainment and I think tried to push Scottish football into the entertainment sphere before it was ready before club chairmen um, were ready for it and, and be- before even the digital age before the, the 4G, 5G broadband revolution was prepared for it. But you look at things like SPL TV, which is still used as a stick to beat Roger with. That was an OTT platform way ahead of its time. Yep. So as Roger keeps saying in his social dispatches, people might have the best ideas in the world. It's a matter of timing. Um, but it was a good help to me. Uh, I worry about now and again when I see his Friday night dispatches, but uh, I, I, I genuinely, it, it, it's on a serious note throughout the COVID-19 stuff, um, t- telling us what was happening there. And I still think a lot of Scotland, never mind Scottish football, were kind of ignorant to what was going to yeah. inevitably come here. Uh, and on a personal level, without getting too deep on a, on a Friday night um, podcast, a lot of the stuff he was saying we implemented, myself, Stephen, um, friend and partner at, at Frame took a lot of what was happening from Italy and made sure that ourselves, our business, our parents were on high alert because I think people were still being quite blasé about it. Mm. So long story short, uh, Roger has been <clears throat> a big help to me. Um, I think Scottish football was better for having Roger. I know he fell out with people and people towards the end might have vilified and ridiculed him. 
But actually, uh, in that job, when you when you look at what was on the table, I, I think he can have his head high in what he tried to do for Scottish football. Might have a wee chip in his shoulder now when you look at some of the stuff, but I think even he would acknowledge that and, and what could have been. And occasionally I say that to him as well, what might have been had had clubs taken a deep breath and, and taken the plunge. You mentioned the situation for yourself and your business. Are you quite quiet at the moment or are you finding yourself a lot busier than expected? It's been interesting. Um, and I don't want to be blasé about it, but I mean, we've got a, a sports part of it and, and naturally when there's no sport on, your, your first instinct is to go, oh shit. Um, the reality is that a lot of... A lot of sports, a lot of people need guidance. Um, I think the importance of communication is is vital, whether it's governmental, whether it's Jason Leach, um, who mercifully in the last couple of weeks I've gotten in touch with, and he's been helpful, and try to take government messages and, and put them into a kind of football context to use the power of football to, to tell people to stay in the house. So communication uh, has been hugely important across all the sports. So, so what we've largely done over the last couple of weeks is to make sure sports organisations are ready, make sure that they've got their communications right for, for coronavirus and actually prepare them internally and, and, and externally for, for something that none of us could have foreseen, but we're actually now living. Absolutely, and something I want to ask you about, you're on the radio, you don't hold back from your opinions, um, just as your, your colleagues do. And I'm you think some, you... People say, some people say I'm quite boring, and, and I get that you shouldn't live your life in social media, but it does, it's the one thing I'm always conscious of, that when I left the SFA, Scottish FA, sorry, I find it really hard now because I spent six years correcting people when they said SFA. The reason for that is because it's it's been used as an acronym for the best part of 20 years. Um, but actually, um, I've enjoyed it. I, I, I'd, I'd hate to think that in leaving it, I'd sound like a mouthpiece. The challenges or the difficulty I face is that I've spent long enough looking at a Scottish FA handbook every year. And I always remember there was a guy called David Finlay, who I suppose was a kind of an unpopular character. But David was, I think, the first Scottish FA press officer. And I remember one of my first weeks, because I was always warned by people, you need to be careful with David Finlay. He'll stitch you up, he'll do that. And I actually got on okay with him, because I confronted him about it. <laughs> and he was one of the... <laughs> so everybody thinks you're going to stab me in the back. Why is that? And he was fine with me. He had a different approach to what PR was back in the day. But the first thing he always said, and I remember it, is make sure you have a Scottish FA handbook, make sure you know your articles of association. And I think a lot of people saw that as a kind of aloof, well, there we go, he's part of the kind of establishment in with the bricks, a kind of institutionalised SFA blazer. But in actual fact, sitting and poring over it gives you a feel for not just how the organisation works, but how it exists, how, how, how the members around it interact and what the realities are. So I doffed my cap to him for telling me that that should be my Friday night home. I actually think he said just keep it in the toilet. I don't know why. Maybe the fetish, I don't know. Um, but I enjoyed it. Um, and, and you naturally spend most of your time pouring over disciplinary rules. So I, I think my function for the BBC and what they, what they like is the fact that somebody can matter-of-factly rhyme off various articles and rules um, but, but try and put them in a context that people can relate to. Might not always agree with it, and, and that's good, uh, but at least give a bit of context and a bit of fact based on opinion, which is completely different to how I was as a young journalist, because I thought I was an know-it-all and I knew nothing. 
So now we have gone full circle. In terms of being a young journalist, as you said, see when you're making the way in the game mm. and you're writing articles and maybe you're critiquing the SFA or critiquing... Critiquing? <laughs> critiquing that's a euphemism. <laughs> One of the first conversations I had was with Jim Fleet and I had to apologise because you'll be too young to remember this, but Frank McAviti, I'm sure it was at the time, made this great proclamation of a youth action plan and we're going to be at World Cups and we're going to have X number of indoor centres. What happened in, in, in the way that it was um, prophesied? So I'd routinely in my column referred to it as the youth inaction plan. So you can imagine my first day at the SFA as head of communications and doing my <laughs> introductions by department and Jim Fleeton, who I'd, I'd, I'd grown to um, have a lot of respect and time for. <laughs> kind of went, right, how do we get beyond this? Because it'd been a relentless assault on what I, what, what I thought at the time. And, and, and to be honest, I, I still hold some of those views that it was conflating two things. So yeah, had quite a few apologies to make in my first week at the Scottish FA, but as a journalist, I was lucky. I grew up with a lot of real journalistic doyens. I think the Herald was the kind of last resting place for a lot of the, the, the real kind of old school um, sports writers. Jim Reynolds, one of the, the, the great boxing um, aficionados and, and somebody who helped me develop a love for boxing. I'm only half joking when I say that boxing is probably my first love. I'm fortunate enough to be in the board of boxing Scotland and through Jim Reynolds and going to fights, watching Scott Harrison, watching Ricky Burns latterly, watching Alex Arthur. It was terrific. Um, I had Ken Gallagher and Ian Paul. Ian Paul was one of the loveliest writers that I'd ever encountered. And then towards the end of my journalistic career dealing with Hugh McDonald, which is quite an experience if you know Hugh. Hugh is a genius. Hugh was a tortured genius and probably remains tortured, but uh, I think without doubt, the best writer, the best um, journalist uh, in the country. Tom English runs him a close second, but I think Tom will doff his cap to Hugh. But I was very, very lucky. Great sports editors, great writers to learn from. And people keep trying to get me to poco expenses, but of course I never did that. <laughs> the thing I wanted to put you on the spot with was... I don't know about you, but one of the things that's frustrating me at the moment is the whole talk of... Am I allowed to take a drink on this show, by the way? Is ah, of course you can. That? You sure? Right. Absolutely. It's Friday after all. I know, I know we're probably not going to go out on a Friday, so apologies for dating your show, but it's weird working from home, and my wife has been... It's like living in the Prohibition era here. Um, during the week, and all my friends and work colleagues are saying, oh, do we wine after work? And I've had nothing, literally nothing. Cup of tea at seven o'clock. Um, so I, I put an Asahi without branding so one of the, my favorite beer um, so just just to wet the palate <laughs> what I was going to say is um, what you were saying the thing that's been um, frustrating me a wee mm. bit recently normally in this podcast I don't really overly give my views but the whole talk of transfers and what's going to happen in the summer with clubs signing him or this or that I don't know what it is at the moment but that's kind of frustrating me in the sense that there's a bigger picture out there and we don't even know if the season's going to finish yet never mind talking about he might go for this or they might sign him because yeah. it's, it will, it's just all what-ifs. Listen, in, in the grand scheme of things, I know it's difficult for, for football fans and clubs for that matter. It's irrelevant. As much as we might not like yeah. to admit it, this is unprecedented. And suddenly we're in a situation where survival, human survival, is the most important thing. I get that 
football clubs, institutions, businesses up and down the country are wrestling with short-term uh, cash flow issues. And that, that's the challenge from a business perspective, to, to do all we can to keep as many clubs alive as possible. But football is only a microcosm of, of life. Um, and Jurgen Klopp's great quote of a few weeks ago, football has no immunity from coronavirus. And it's true. And I get that people want to have a sense of normality. Football provides the whole country with a, an emotional crutch. Um, it is the national sport for a reason. And I suppose it's, it's reassuring that people still care about it and people still want to know who's winning the league, who's getting relegated, when will it happen, who's going to be in Europe. But unfortunately, it's out of our hands. And I think, we, I think as a race, we struggle with it because we like to think that as human beings who develop um, technology like <laughs> what we're dealing with now, and could you imagine this happened 15 years ago? with dial-up broadband <laughs> and no tablets. It would be horrendous. Imagine trying to get Zoom on your Atari 2600. <laughs> That's true. But I think, but I think if, if you take football to one side for, for a minute, it's re you realise we're no longer in control. You know, this, this pandemic can take hold and we're at its mercy. Uh, and to take it back to football, football's the same. You can plan as best you can. UEFA have tried it. Scottish FA's tried it. Uh, national governing bodies, leagues are in it. Can't predict. And people keep saying, well, when can we get football back on? Nobody knows. And the frustration, the challenge for world governing bodies, European football's governing body is every country will get out of this at a different time. And you're already seeing countries that think they're out of it, think they're back on the downslope are suddenly now having to ramp up service provision again because there's potential second wave of outbreak. So for the meantime, I think we have to revel in BBC Scotland's um, replaying of all those classic cup finals, retain an interest in football and what clubs are doing is terrific. The, the ways in which clubs, players, managers are being more accessible than ever before, I think is hugely important because it's important that people have something to look forward to, something to help them through this period as for when football restarts as for who wins the league and, and how they win it I get it's important I get it vexes a lot of people through natural footballing rivalries in the grand scheme of things it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things I totally agree with you at the moment health and as you say survival is the most important thing one of the things I want to talk to you about, and I don't want to get too philosophical, but I feel like... I was going to say, this is getting a bit deep already. But let's go. <laughs> <laughs> let's go. Um, you mentioned the whole thing about managers, players becoming more accessible. Do you see this right. as maybe being a sort of cultural reset for football in the sense that we're all kind of forced to get back to sort of community and family roots because we're stuck indoors and, and maybe when, this, when we get back to a level of normality, it will be a sort of new normality, if you will? I think there's, there's a few parts. I think it's natural. The bigger the club you're at, the more kind of protective um, bubble around you. What's happened now is everybody's, everybody's equal. Everybody's stuck in the house. However big or small their house is, they're stuck in the house. You have limited means. You have one daily exercise. So in a way, there's, there's a kind of rationalisation. What you realise is that footballers are... And I've, I've been fortunate enough to deal with um, international footballers, um, all my days at the Scottish FA, deal with footballers, managers when I was a journalist. And the hardest thing is, is, is reconciling two things. 
your job, especially as a journalist, is to kind of create myths to make myth makers out of you, make heroes out of people. When at the same time, in, in Com's job, you realise they're only human beings. Some they've all got the same insecurities, got the same uh, obligations to family, but scrutiny like like you can't believe. So I think if nothing else, there's a realization from footballers that they're they're not immune to this, and that glimpse inside the sports people's lives, I think, is is helpful to everybody else. I think their messaging, because of their audiences, have been important. Um, but they have fun. Footballers like to have a laugh, like most people. Um, and what you're seeing now is that accessibility and footballers realizing the impact they can have, and clubs realizing that without match day tickets to sell there's actually a conversation to be had a conversation that doesn't need to sell because and again I've, I've found myself guilty of this in, in my previous job and probably current job that the vast majority of opportunities media interviews there's always something to sell or market whether it's tickets or season tickets or the opening of a new facility this is a conversation um, and the more conversations we can have after this the better Absolutely, I totally agree with that. I think it's something that's really important. And to to get on to a a, a light especially with Tony, especially with Tony Watt, because he's hilarious. Aye, brilliant. His stuff on the online's been class. Magnificent. He's on Twitch now, and and, and I remember Tony being called into Scotland squads, and he was he sat down next to me um, on the team bus first time he was called in, baseball cap on, kind of. I think he had his headphones in as well. And once you kind of broke down the barrier, real just a, just a shy guy. It's not his fault he scored a goal against the best team in the world. But if you think about the impact it's had, yes, there's been huge positives, but you go from young lads from Airdrie who wants to do his best to play for the team he loves, suddenly stratospheric rise, and there's this assumption that, oh, you can just go from being Tony Fairdrie to a Celtic icon and hero in people's minds and... And, as, and, and, you know, to give all credit to, to what you do in your show, it, it's making people understand that everybody's human. Everybody has emotion. Footballers don't just stop their emotion uh, as soon as they become first-team footballers. So I'm delighted to see Tony reinvent himself because that what-to-watch stuff he did to begin with was shite. <laughs> <laughs> oh. But no, you're right. I think, see, in terms of the, the human side of footballers, see, since I've started this and spoke to managers, players, officials or whatever, you do realise that they're all just normal people who, as you say, because of newspapers and Sky Sports and the way you watch them on a Saturday or a Sunday or Tuesday night, whenever these games are now, that they're, they're painted out to be, as you say, these mythical icons. But yeah. when you break it down a bit, they're just like you and I, they're just normal guys yeah. and normal women who, who enjoy the game and, and live the normal lives. And it's fascinating because I'll go back to boxing. The, the, the thing that turned me on to sport and wanted to write about sport was Hugh McIlvaney's McIlvaney on boxing. And the stories within that, if you think about it now, you imagine what it's like trying, if you were to say, I'm going to try and interview Cristiano Ronaldo. How long would it take? How many hoops would you have to jump through for five minutes of sanitised, passional probability versus Hugh McIlvaney sitting... I think it was either before or after the Sunny Liston fight. On, in fact, it was before, days before, on Muhammad Ali's roof with him talking about boxing. So it's things like that. I mean, the, the greatest sportsman, I think, the greatest boxer of all time, one of the greatest athletes of all time, 
there was this uh, heroing of him through his persona, personality. But actually, you could sit next to Muhammad Ali, you could phone up Muhammad Ali on the landline and get through to him. And, and that, that stuff now is just unthinkable. Um, so yeah, I, I think we do have to use the last few weeks and, and, and see that sometimes actually conversations, genuine conversations can have as much impact um, as media opportunities or the chance to get access to a player for 10, 15 minutes. You mentioned conversations. You've had some incredible debates and conversations with Tom English and Mikey Stewart over the years. What are they <laughs> like to work with? Do they wind each other up as soon as they come into the studio before recording or as soon as you go on air? Is that when it starts? The weirdest thing is... Uh, I love Mikey, right? So Mikey's in our office weekly. We're literally next door to BBC um, and Mikey's always in and about. What I'll say for, for Michael is that more than anyone else, and probably Tom a close second, purely because Tom doesn't get out of his way to try and do you. But with Mikey and Tom, you know you need to do your research. You cannot go in there half-cocked because you'll get savage. And I've seen it. I've been on air when people have come in and tried to be a certain way because they know what's coming or actually don't know what's coming and end up getting savaged. I think it... It's raised the standard of journalism. It's raised the standard of analysis. We talk about punditry, and I, and I find that term not offensive, but I think it's disingenuous to, to people who spend a lot of time understanding what's happening, making the calls, doing the hard yards, watching games, being in the business for long enough, having opinions like, like yourself. Um, Mikey and Tom help raise the bar. I think there are some bluntly across the, the airwaves who are chancers, some who haven't changed their view in five years, some who, who go in at it lazily. But I think, and, and, and add Chris Sutton to the kind of group of people who have raised the standard of debate, Chris goes out of his way to wind people up. But I tell you what, he will defend his position to the hill. You might not agree with him. In fact, you might vehemently disagree with him. But that's not just a natural, I'm going to go on TV and cause chaos. There's a bit of work that goes into that. And the same of Mikey. Mikey never goes in unprepared. Well, maybe once or twice. But um, the the thing with Mike, Michael, I, I could easily understand if he became a cabinet secretary. Um, sports should actually have a cab sec position. I, I think we need to get to, if sport is genuinely, and if football is the number one, sport in the country and if sports to be taken as seriously as it should be um, it should have cab sec uh, dedication but that's my political view uh, for, a, for a minute. Mikey's an equally easy company whether he's sitting with a group of sports people or whether he's sitting with a group of politicians the one uniting factor that Mikey has with the m most managers and players in Scottish football is that they've all fallen out of him <laughs> what I need to do after a show is phone my mum and she'll go, that Michael, can you tell that Michael to shut up? And I have to explain, I do this every time. It's like fucking Groundhog Day. Complete that out, if not. I said, it's theatre. Michael's there, he's got his own view, and there's nothing worse than everybody going, yeah, I agree with him, and yeah, that's great. So it becomes a bit of theatre. It's entertainment in the day, but if you do your homework, it's all right to fall out. Just be prepared to have to defend your position, because if not, he'll bring out his big mallet and smack you over the head with it and same with Tom In terms I'd like of, I'd like to think I hold my own 
and not not be too boring because that that's my worry that I become boring and seen as just on there as a defender of the Scottish FA. But in actual fact, I did it before I joined the Scottish FA and have done it since. In terms of those two guys, as you said, when it comes to an argument, see if they're going at each other or they're or they're having having a ding dong. Is it is that a sort of moment where you just sit back and watch the carnage and just pick the right moment to come in? I've seen people go to the toilet. I've seen people go to the toilet and then when you come out um, of the toilet in the BBC, if you turn right, there's a wee urn and there's some like hot water and cold. I've actually been able to go to the toilet, come out, make myself a coffee, go back in and still not have missed the debate. When they go at it, it's, it's quite a thing. The best one I ever heard, I actually wasn't in the studio, I was coming back from Geneva, I think it was on a UEFA um, visit. And there was an infamous, I think the two of them went real hammer and tongs and, and I think it got a wee bit personal between them. But the thing is, as soon as the show's over, regardless of how, I mean, sometimes it's been carnage. Regardless of that, as soon as the mics are off and, and Kenny McIntyre is, I mean, he instigates it all. He's just a wind-up merchant. But he does it because he knows what kind of show he wants. Uh, and I think the Monday night show stands apart from the rest of the week, which is kind of magazine type. And I think Monday was supposed to be a magazine type feature show, but quickly became hostile grilling. Um, but Kenny's the architect of it. He will deliberately wind you up. He will phone round to make sure everybody understands what's on the agenda. And what if he said this? So in a way, Kenny, Kenny sets the pace for it and would start a fight in an empty house. Uh, and the rest of us are only too willing to oblige him. <laughs> you mentioned your role in communications and media. How important yeah. is it to, when you are a kind of media and communications chief, to make sure the message you get out there is consistent and, and it, it delivers everything that, that fans want or, or the country wants, especially when you're working with a national team? It's a really interesting question because, and I wrestle with it sometimes, because I think if you over-prepare, I think if you make it too scripted, it becomes inauthentic. It then just becomes unbelievable. So what I've always tried to do, uh, rightly or wrongly, is, is have a level of authenticity about it. So speak to people, because you can't, I think some people do, and I think some people, regardless of who the manager is or who the chief exec is, they almost have this kind of cookie-cutter approach to this is how you deal with the job and this is how we expect you to speak. And they're just a generation of drones. So the, the, the trick is to understand what people want. And I, and I say that with no hint of irony because when you're in a, a kind of governing body situation with the Scottish FA, for example, it's like government. No matter what you do, there'll be a group of people who will disagree with your decision and a large gathering of people who, who will not accept or agree with, with that decision. So it's no different to, to politics in that way. But in terms of actually allowing people to express themselves, I mean, it, I, can, I can only look at people that I've, that I've worked with from a Scottish FA context and, and other sports. So from a chief exec's point of view, Stuart Reagan was a very different character, professional um, chief exec to Ian Maxwell is. And both of them are materially different to, and only had a limited time with them to, to Gordon Smith. All of them had different skill sets. All of them have been put in at different times and required to do a different job. So there's no point in expecting them all to behave a certain way or to conform to Scottish FA way because the, the benefit of Ian 
played with distinction. Um, Queen's Park to uh, Partick Thistle, obviously, has been involved in boardroom conversations before. So it has a bit of a not unique skill set, but a skill set that sets him apart for that role and that he can empathise. And I think empathy goes a long way, especially when you're chief executive of the Scottish FA, because it's not only setting out to do the right thing for Scottish football, but being seen to be trying to do the right thing for Scottish football. Stuart, different beast. Stuart was very methodical in what he wanted. Stuart had a had a real voracious appetite. I genuinely, he, he, he taught me a lot. I've never known a man with a um, an appetite for work like he had from first thing in the morning to last thing at night he was on and it was relentless but I tell you what and as a head of comms it kept you on your toes um, again Gordon's situation was slightly different Gordon was a football guy who wanted to in fact <laughs> I think I got the job because I sat in an interview with George Pete um, and Gordon Smith and they said so what would you change because I didn't apply for the job I was actually quite dismissive of it when I heard that it was up because obviously Rob the short house had, had been in before had come from politics which was probably a decent grounding for Scottish football although I think he probably enjoyed more politics and football than he did in Holyrood um, but I was kind of dismissive of it because I'd, I'd still been writing my columns and thought oh, they'll never give it to me I remember one day George Pete phoned up and said if you think you're that smart and sorry for trying to put on his every accent you think you're that smart why don't you apply for it I said, it's not my thing I'm a journalist and I think what they needed was somebody to understand how the media worked um, from a sports writing perspective um, and, and and make a difference but at the interview they said well what's the, what's the first thing you change I said well I don't know if it's my decision or not but you want to be chief exec and you want to be president so how the two are you going to work together because from the outside as a journalist you would always see that Gordon was the chief exec, but probably wanted to be a platini minister or before what had happened with platini, obviously. <laughs> um, but I think he wanted to be the kind of platini former player, presidential, kissing babies and, and opening up new facilities. Whereas George, George was old school. George was, George was a politician, knew his constituency, but probably wanted to be boss. So the two of them were actually in completely the wrong jobs. They, they, were, they should have swapped jobs. Remarkably, not least because I think I had glandular fever as well around about that time. I got the job um, and my first day was George Burley's last. <laughs> my leaving do I remember in 2009, Scotland has been hosed by Wales and thought, right, I was due a couple of weeks off to get out of my journalistic kind of skin and prepare for Scottish FA. I remember getting a phone call because old George had the, the foresight, rather than go to the Scotland-Wales game, he'd buggered off to Azerbaijan with the 21s. And then on the Sunday morning, where are you, where are you, where are you? And I said, well, I'm recovering from a hangover after my leaving do. Um, right, I might need you in the office tomorrow. And, and that was that was the start of it. Basically, Scotland under siege, back page headlines everywhere, George Burley must go, fans I think had lost faith in him. And so my first job was to basically tell them what they already knew. You, you can't get out of this. For everybody's benefit, you have to, you have to do the right thing. So right there and then on day one, pressed into, if not quite, it's not crisis. And it, 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 you had Alistair Campbell on, on uh, recently and Alistair's been a great help to me. And the one thing they always said is, don't believe it's a crisis just because people keep telling you it is. So that was a great example of people telling you, oh, SFA's in crisis because Scotland lost to Wales. Well, actually, 
wasn't a crisis. It was just a a big media frenzy that needed to be to be dealt with. So if not, it, it, Alistair taught me how to be calm under siege, which is just as well because most of my tenure at the Scottish FA was under some kind of siege. In terms of, you mentioned George Butler there in management, without talking about him personally, see when a manager leaves, especially Scotland, you know what it's like yep. with speculation, who's getting the job, there's always five or six people linked. From a, from your point of view in media and comms, is it your job to sort of just defend the barrier and, and not give anything away? No, my instinct's to attack. Because you, if you defend, you're always going to defend. And I don't mean attack in, a, in an aggressive way. But why be shy about it? If you've got things to say, say it. If you can see it, and the greatest thing that journalism ever gave me was the ability to see around corners, to know what the next step would be. And that's, that's and everything I do, it's not thinking about, well, what does it look like now? It's taking a situation and going, well, right, that, that's how it is just now. And as much as we want to react to that now, but how's the situation going to develop? And again, part of me goes to, what's the worst that can happen? And if I can plan for the worst case scenario, Everything else that follows, I think, will be easier to deal with. And in a way, if you prepare leaders, as Chief Executive and President of the Scottish FA or, or manager should be, you prepare them for the worst-case scenario, then anything else becomes easier to deal with. Um, so I, I don't like the defensive position. Um, people might bring siege upon you, but I'm never a fan of just constantly getting hit and, and, and taking the blows. I'm, I, I would much rather find a nimble way out and, and get on the front foot to use the boxing analogy. See, when the manager's being appointed, is it important to maybe drip feed that out to some media sources first of all when announcing it, or do you try and keep that and just splash it as your big exclusive really? Ooh, right. There's two ways of doing that, and, and part of me has long realised that if you want something kept quiet, Scottish football is the last place you want to inhabit. But it's interesting because you see people coming in all kind of wide-eyed and, no, no, it'll be fine. You understand that, that Scottish football has a massive media exposure, and we should be grateful for that, has a massive public attention. And lots of people who want to uh, be seen to be favourable uh, to the media. So... Invariably, nothing gets kept quiet. So part, part, of, part of my role, part of the advice is always assume this gets out. Assume that where we all might be nodding to each other and saying nice things and no, it will never leak out. Among the six of us, something could probably get out because all it takes is one person saying to his or her board members at the club and before you know it, it's, it's fair game. So the immediacy... I think if you're going to say something, say it quickly and, and take control of it because otherwise somebody else is going to take control. And that's something that applies in the here and now. So you always have to be nimble. You have to understand the touch points. But if it comes to high high profile um, appointments, they very rarely get kept quiet for no other reason than there's not usually a big surprise. I mean, if you take Steve Clark, for example, Steve was a stick on. Um, I think Steve was a unanimous choice. The public choice, I think, when you look at the job he did at Kilmarnock, you can easily take that into the international sphere. Take a group of players who are not the, the, the most successful team, um, a modest budget, and to do what he did with Kilmarnock is nothing short of miraculous. 
also take a, a, a disaffected or ambivalent group of fans and get to a situation where they're literally shouting your name in your swan song and you have to address them like Frank Sinatra leaving the stage. <laughs> so in many ways, the job that Steve did at Kilmarnock is exactly the job that needed to be done um, with Scotland. Because I mean, the Alex McLeish era, and, and I've got a lot of time for Alex, but from the outside, um, it just it didn't work. Uh, I don't think the fans took him. In fact, I'd said on radio countless times that he was almost uniquely unpopular um, and that wasn't the fans' choice. I think a large percentage of Scotland fans have nationalistic tendencies. He backed the union. I think people disliked him for that. He'd taken an EBT, so a groundswell of Scottish football fans didn't like him. So as much as I know Alec, and that's the, the kind of perception versus reality again, the perception wasn't great from day one, and I don't think Alec ever recovered from that or ever managed to bridge the gap. So Scotland needed somebody to bring stability, somebody to bring, um, I think, a structure to the training and to make it, just to take us back to being difficult to beat again. And that was having been in the outset from the Gordon Strachan era when having, having been tormented by Wales, then Serbia, then Belgium, and, and kind of Gordon and Martin, how do we turn this around? To then see the brand of football that, that Gordon had with the team. I think there was a reset that needed uh, that was needed with Steve to make Scotland difficult to beat again and give us a foundation on which to um, flourish with the front players we've got because we've got a terrific middle to front. And if you look at our midfield now, if we've got everybody fit, we're absolutely laughing. It's getting that group together consistently enough to, to thrive. So um, long, long story short, it's almost impossible to, to keep things out of the news and things that are managerial appointment, it's never going to be a huge surprise because as much as it would be a dereliction of duty to not look at any other options, I think in, in, in almost every uh, capacity, Steve was the right person for the job. Something I'm interested to talk to you about in terms of media and communications. How is it if you ever are in a position, because I'm sure this has happened not just to yourself, but lots of heads of media, when you have to maybe put a statement out that you personally don't agree with, is it just having that professional element of you to just crack on and go on with the job, despite the fact you might not necessarily agree with the message you've been told to portray? Interesting one, because I'm quite, there's a bit of me that, and I think it's my journalistic background again, I'll, just, I, I'll refuse to put out something that I think will negatively impact on the reputation of the people I'm there to represent. So I would rather sit, in, and I've done it, I'd rather sit in a room, argue with people, convince them that I know what I'm doing because from a media and communications point of view, from a from public comms, I know what I'm doing. I might be speaking to a manager or a chief exec and I couldn't do their jobs. Well, maybe, maybe rephrase that. I couldn't put myself in their shoes and I wouldn't expect them to tell me how to do my job. But I need to find a way diplomatically at first to explain to them, this is stupid, this is a bad idea. Um, but I would much rather fight and argue. And I think some people are diplomatic. Um, maybe it's experience that's, that's taught me it. But I think you have to be honest with people. I've seen it. I've seen it in the PR business. I've seen it in the, in the journalism business that some people just want an easy life or some people are intimidated by football figures. I was lucky I'd, I'd, from 16 getting 
told to go and get tea and coffee for people get their morning rolls and not actually being called by your name for the first year that you you get streetwise um, and, and you understand that the job is not to stand in awe of people who are in high authority, but to challenge them and to protect them. So maybe I've been lucky, but I've never actually put out something that in good conscience have gone, I, I shouldn't be doing this. I, equally, I don't want that to sound as if I've always had my way, but I would never willingly put something out that I know would cause absolute um, catastrophe for, for, the, for the people that, that, that we're talking about. And instinctively, people will um, watch that and go, well, what about the Rangers situation and, 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 and how that was dealt with? That, that's one of those situations that no matter how long um, we're all around for, there will always be two diametrically opposed opinions. Well, in actual factors, the irony when you look back on it, Celtic, Celtic fans always believed that, that Rangers weren't dealt with sufficiently. And Rangers fans always maintained that the punishment was too severe. So when you're in that situation, you've probably got the right balance. Whether people will admit it or not, whether things could have been handled better and um, how they got there, but I think ultimately when, when people disagree over the, the same thing for different reasons, then you've, you've probably struck a balance. I want to talk to you about your career as a footballer. Um, <laughs> you were on the book. Yeah? That, that'll be short. We must be getting to the end of the programme now. <laughs> well, you were on the books at Queen's Park, so you must have had something about you. Um, it's funny because I, I, I was always... A, I, see that, I grew up in Castle. I played from, God, three, three four years of age. Um, some early, some great memories. I remember playing Winlaw, and there was always this guy, because I think it was primary five, maybe. And there was always this guy that people kept talking about, oh, you need to see him. And I played against Winlaw, we got absolutely spanked, and this wee guy scored from the halfway line, uh, and it was Charlie Miller. <laughs> and he was, I mean, growing up in Castmoke, he was the one that you go, because I, I was too old to remember Frank and Eddie Gray. I'd spoken to them since. But those kind of great players from Castamilk who'd, who'd come through and, and done great things. Charlie was Charlie was that. Charlie was a, was a real natural talent. Um, I was always the quickest in my teams. Um, I was always fast. I, I played it right back and then moved centrally. But I got released to Queen's Park. I went to Queen's Park when I was 16. And I had the fortune of leaving misfortune of a couple of training sessions with a youth team, the Strollers, as they were called, with Eddie Hunter in his prime. And again, you'll be too young to remember Eddie Hunter. Eddie Hunter was a firebrand. If you can imagine Ray Winston and Ben Kingsley morphed into one. In fact, Ray Winston, Ben Kingsley, and the guy from Good Morning, the, the drill sergeant from Good Morning Vietnam, if you could put all them together, you've got Eddie Hunter. Um, this honestly, the, his training methods would have failed the Geneva Convention. And I remember seeing Brian McPhee. Brian McPhee was a terrific, carved a terrific career. I'd never seen anybody quicker. Never seen anybody strong. Never seen anybody um, who could who could get around a pitch that way. Long story short, I was given the captaincy at under seventeen for pre-season and had the worst pre-season ever to the point that when the season started I was on the bench. Uh, the irony was uh, Willie Neal who until recently was the Scottish national team's kit man was the manager at the time and I keep saying that he was singularly responsible for ending my career. 
was I good enough? I probably was good enough, but it, it, it goes back to the mental stuff. I, I was mentally weak. My first touch would define how my game was going to be. And I always remember, my dad was a terrific player, and I always remember my dad continually saying to me as a kid, your problem is you can't read a game. And I kept saying, well, what does that mean? And he would just shake his head and go, oh, I can't tell you. You either, you either can read a game or you can't. And that was, I never had any formal coaching until Queen's Park. Um, and I, I still look back and go, well, everybody, listen, it's opportunity for everybody. A couple of things had happened to me. I was, I was actually shy and probably still am. I just tied it really, really well. And at the same time, I'd done my hires and needed specs. Um, but I hadn't done anything about it. And it was only after I got released, I went to play amateur football again, got contact lenses and suddenly became better again. So who knows? Maybe I just uh, I panicked because you were, remember corner kicks and stuff, you're squinting your eyes. and That's my excuse anyway. But one of the great things I did, we managed to win the Scottish Football Writers Association. We're the last team to win at the old Wembley in 1999. And it's funny, I, I get a wee bit nostalgic when we're stuck in the house. Got some pictures of that game and um, apart from Keith Jackson ruining it by taking his top off and getting his big Darby Kelly right in the middle of the team shot along with Chick Young. Interestingly, Chick Young's chest hair was a different colour to his actual hair. What that one out. Um, but but I had some had some highlights of played in some some wonderful places. Um, if I were a footballer, I'd have probably been cut broadfoot um, with the, the limited ability that George Burley unfortunately um desecrated them with but I mean Kirk, Kirk made the absolute most of what he had and I don't think we're related but I think there must be a kind of distant um, relative somewhere in Ayrshire we, we talked about it a few times so aye that was that was my football career in short that didn't take long did it <laughs> where did you play um, right back mostly because I the thing and this is what did for me is what I used to do weightlifting I and I probably shouldn't have, because I started about 13, 14, your bones are still going, so that was daft. But I used to be a world um, champion weightlifter many, many stones ago when I was about eight and a half stone, 55 kilogram class. And I was doing that while trying to play football. And the more like the more intense the training got at Queen's Park, I was doing hamstrings getting pulled because I was doing a deadlift competition or so. Stupid, stupid stuff. Um, and now at 41, trying to get my old figure back, which isn't eh, quite going according to plan. I want to talk to Especially you. when I'm drinking beer on a Friday. <laughs> I want to talk to you about your opinion on football now. Um, a lot of people think there's too much money in the game, especially down in England. Scotland, we maybe don't have that luxury out with maybe one, two, maybe three, three, three or four clubs max. What's your opinion on the, the game and the state of play now? Nobody, I was going to say nobody can control it, but, but the market will dictate. Um, I remember growing up, watching NBA thrive, Chicago Bulls, and looking at some of those eye-watering salaries that, again, I'm sure my age, Larry Bird would get a $20 million guarantee and Michael Jordan was getting $100 million in endorsements and uh, Chicago um, salary. And football just football became that same thing. Um, if, if you think about it realistically, I, do, I don't begrudge... Messi, Ronaldo, the, the genuine cream, do not begrudge them the eye-watering salaries because they are the world's best footballing entertainers in the same way that, depending on your music taste, whether it's Drake or Jay-Z or whoever, multi-million. And, and we grew up kind of realising that pop stars get massive amounts of money and basketball players and NFL players get massive amounts. 
the same should apply to the best footballers. And in a way, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that football has been recognised for providing that entertainment. The problem comes when bang average mediocre footballers um, in the lower reaches of, of English football and non-league football command greater salaries than probably most of the premiership clubs in Scotland. That's when the balance absolutely skews when you have a rump of footballers who are modest um, being multi-millionaires. And again, I stress, that's not the players' fault. Players aren't going out asking for that. But that that's the, that's the, the value of the market, and so the market dictates. Um, I, what I also say is people cannot underestimate what footballers have to sacrifice because with that professionalism comes the, the realisation that 10 years of their, their lives, 15 years of their lives, 20 if they're lucky, in preparation and dedication to their sport. And the vast majority do that. I think what happens is you get a small minority of people who either can't handle the money or the fame or a combination of both. And again, that's I still don't blame them. I think what we need to do is better prepare footballers for what can happen, both good and bad. Because I think we're now through PFA Scotland and, and through some of the, the, the mental health charities that have come to the fore, I think there's a, a realisation and a better appreciation of a support network that was for years non-existent. And it's still got a journey, but whether in success or in relative failure, there needs to be an understanding that, that players are human and players suffer the same emotions. What you tend to find is that the higher the personality, the less inclined they are to show weakness. And, and as you've touched on in your programme and, and obviously through your own story, that's that's a recipe for um, for a really unhealthy situation. In terms of the mental health aspect in, in football, see when you're in a role like communications, you're, being a, you're a sports writer, you're yep. working in, in terms of deadlines and pressure, is that something that brings its own mental challenges? Um, I think it was a good grounding for me. There's a stress up to a point in journalism. And listen, I'm not, I'm not saying for a minute that I was nothing but, but ever grateful. But I remember some really <laughs> worrying times when, so for example, Celtic, Manchester United. Man United, I think, batter Celtic for the best part of 80 odd minutes. Then you see Nakamura shaping up to take a free kick. And you know what's happening. The 600 words you've written until that point are absolutely meaningless because he's going to stick it in the top corner. And sh one of the greatest experiences of, of my journalistic career, just that, just the atmosphere and and the sense of occasion. But you also have to sharpen up because you get 1,200 words to rewrite and that 10 o'clock cut-off is 15 minutes away. So I've, I've been lucky in that I had an early schooling on that and you learn to deal with it. Um, there are situations, that, funnily enough, I just sent somebody an email today on that basis. It's become a bit of a, a phrase for me. Nobody ever asked the chief exec if they're okay. There's this assumption that the higher up you are, the, the, the better equipped you are to deal with things. And I always used to caveat that by saying, this, nobody ever asked the head of comms how they're doing either. And I think that's important. It's something I've carried with me. Um, because rightly, there's an understanding that Staff in general need support, whether that's footballing staff or staff in the workplace, and I think there are support mechanisms for them. I also think the same applies to the most high-profile footballers, the most high-profile chief execs, and, and, and those who have decision-making responsibilities for people. And 
you tend to find that people don't ask how they're doing because they just assume because they've got the bigger salary that oh, they'll just deal with it. So don't get me started on Calvinism in the west of Scotland. <laughs> I've got tons of quick-fire questions for you. First one. Fire away. Have you watched the Sunderland documentary? And if so, what do you make of it? Balearic raves are the new rock and roll. Um, I loved season one. I watched the first episode of season two last night and it's the best thing I've seen since Fire Festival. I can't wait to get through it all. Um, it never ceases to amaze me how many spivs can find their way into football. See, in terms of that, the, the rave, see that situation, see just based on that comment alone, I want him in Scottish football because it would just be hilarious. <laughs> Listen, I think we all know, without naming names, that we've had many people like him in Scottish football in recent years. And I'm sure plenty more to come. Well, hopefully not. Hopefully we've all learned our lesson. <laughs> um, what would you say is your favourite ground to watch football at? Oh, you know what? Just to be contrary. Now, I was going to say Hamden because people will watch it and go, ah, nice, these talking rubbish. Um... There's a few. I've got I've got fondness. The first time I ever went on a road trip as a sports writer I ended up in Pataudry. Um and I couldn't drive at the time and I got the train up and was uh, was told by Ron Ron Scott was a was a kind of legend of journalism. Big guy, Sunday Post, Doyen. And Ron said, Ah son, I'll take you back. It was the Crow's Nest, which I don't think's there anymore. Needless to say, he was filing his copy saying, I'll get you the front desk and I'll take you back to the Crow's Nest where you can get your train. So there was I, a young, impressionable journalist, um, laptop bag down, went to the kind of Pataudry reception, passing down with rain, so I was getting soaked. 15 minutes goes by, 20 minutes goes by, half an hour goes by, I'm thinking, you must be writing a lot. Scott Davey, a uh, bit of a local edge up there, came out the door, last media man standing, went, what, what are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm, I'm just waiting on uh, Ron Scott, he's going to take me back to the crow's nest. <laughs> You'll be waiting a while. Ron left an hour ago. <laughs> so that was my introduction to, to journalism. But Pataudry, because you get, from a media point of view, you're in behind these wee perspex, kind of the, I think they were hospitality seats, but in these kind of perspex areas. Um, always enjoyed going up there because it was a, a good day. Morton, honestly, Capolo, because it's got one of the best views. You look at that view now, I think there's something beautiful about uh, Morton never having had a lick of paint for about 40 years by the looks <laughs> of it. But a real, a, pro, a proper football stadium with proper people in Scotland used to train there. And it was it was always great to see international players, players who'd probably never been to a Scottish ground before, apart from Hamden, kind of ducking down to get through the tunnel to get into the dressing room and kind of look about going, for fuck's sake, is this it? Um, but I actually think it's a great it's a great leveller, Capolo and, and people have an attachment to it. But that but that view, the crane and stuff when you're sitting in the main stand is is brilliant. Inverness, so I'm now giving my grand tour of football stadiums. Inverness, because you always get a real uh, great welcome um to a Caledonian Stadium as it was. Um, plus you would get an overnight and I used to always stay in a place called the Heathmount, which was a magnificent boozer recommended by my good friend Ewan Murray of The Guardian, not to be confused with Ewan Murray of Sky Sports, because the two, almost on a daily basis, get confused. <laughs> what would you say is your least favourite ground to watch football at? And that could be just due to the, due to the view uh, or the facilities. 
least favourite. Oh, let me think. There's been a right few over the, a right few over the years. You know what? I would probably say Dingwall for no other reason, and listen, equally as enjoyable uh, as Inverness. But that swirling wind. I mean, the middle of summer, you're freezing there. <laughs> and and as a journalist, I I used to buy these gloves that would have the tips cut off of them, and even then you would get frostbite in the middle of June. Could have been the middle of June, so the season would be finished, so me. <laughs> um, who would you say has been the best players you've watched during your time covering the game? I'm an oddball. I, um, I've got this unhealthy, in fact, I'll show you. I've got this unhealthy fixation with um, the 1988 Soviet Union um, European Championship team. One of the one of the early players growing up that I became utterly fascinated by was Alexei Mikhailichenko, and I still maintain he was one of the best players that ever came to Scotland. And I'd mentioned this in drink once to Walter Smith, and he just looked at me. This guy had been top four European um, Player of the Year the year before he signed for Rangers, had been an absolute pillar. Valery Lobanovsky called him the perfect footballer, and Valery Lobanovsky arguably maybe sent to Sir Alex one of the greatest coaches who ever lived and I watched this guy come to Scotland and fell in love with him here was this Eastern European from former Soviet uh, Union in Glasgow um, central midfielder absolute Rolls Royce and Walter put him wide left and expected him to run up and down the left wing so he was, the, he was probably the first footballer that I genuinely had a real affinity for um, it would be cliched to go through the Larson, Loudrop, Maravchik, Decanio. I was always a fan of the kind of curious oddball. So, so weirdly, and, and, and I like the fact that St. Johnson are doing the who's your greatest ever players. I loved Nick Dasovich because I had this kind of John McEnroe character at St. Johnson, Canadian who could play guitar and looked a bit. To, so I, I love the the unsung hero or the kind of unfancied player. Um, I became friendly friendly, you, you can get football acquaintances. Enrico Anoni former Celtic defender um, and we bonded once because I got, the Celtic used to be horrendous for getting interviews um, but got granted an interview with Enrico Anoni after about six months of pestering them because I'd read somewhere that he was a big Queen fan so I sat down and I think he was half expecting me to talk about Celtic and how he's settling in and we spent an hour talking about Queen's greatest hits, having never been uh, fortunate enough to see Queen live. So it's funny how players from from all over you kind of gravitate to, and mostly it's not because of the football. I mean, Mikhailichenko, I think was a, was a was a terrific player, and it was great to see that wave of foreign player coming to Scotland. You look at I watched the nineteen ninety one game, um, and again two players from my childhood watching again in twenty twenty. Miedrag Krivokopic for kind of similar reasons to Mikhailichenko, but I forgot just how good a player Freddie van der Hoorn was for Dundee United. So I've, I can sit and talk for hours on unheralded, unsung and probably bang average footballers that I've loved and actually grown fond of just because they were a wee bit different. Who would you say are the biggest characters you've had the, the pleasure of interviewing or watching over the years closely? Dylan, Dylan Kerr, um, who... Uh, was a member of the 97 Kilmarnock team. I once interviewed Dylan Kerr as he was having a shower and he demanded that Jim Galloway, the held photographer, 
basically took his feature pictures of Dylan in the shower. Dylan also continually told us about the friendships um, or nights out they would have with um, the female members of the Human League because they all grew up in, in Yorkshire. Dylan was fucking mental. Um, big friend of Gordon Strike. And I, I tell you what, Dylan, as a coach, he went to Kenya. He, he's, he's worked in Africa quite a while. Great personality. Uh, wonderful guy. Bobby Williamson. Bobby was a great help to me in my early journalistic career. A man who would give solemnity a bad name. And one of the most miserable people I've ever met. But was good to me. And I think dined out on it a bit. And, and Bobby mercifully getting over his, his health issues but a real loss to Scottish football and that he's not worked here for a while I think he's, he's happy in, in Africa he's, he's kind of made a new life out there but I think he brought a lot to Scottish football in a kind of doer Jim McLean type of way Who would you say are the, have been the toughest characters to interview over the years? Um, I've kind of been fortunate in that no, mostly agents in, in journalistic terms are one of the real aggravations in my life is that you'd have to speak to agents. And not all agents are the same. And I think now there's a, a greater appreciation for not just trying to sell people, but most of my really horrible experiences were trying to speak to pond life agents who've got no interest in football, Scottish football, or even the players are representing and having to do a bit of a dance with them. I was lucky that I was at the Herald, so I didn't have to have the, the, the daily demand for outrageous back page headlines or, or, or kind of 60% true stories. But I just always found that a really demoralising experience phoning up for a tip bit from a tip. <laughs> um, Make sure you put this out after nine o'clock. Some non-football ones for you. Um, Favourite film? Great. Or a top five? Yeah, top five, right, I can do top five. Um, Rocky, um, Once Upon a Time in America, E.T., because it's the only film that probably still makes me cry, Godfather 2, and Taxi Driver. Oh, brilliant. Top five. Then I've missed out Cocktail. Cocktail's <laughs> my guilty pleasure. We'll keep that on the side. Top five bands? Sexy Beast, that's in the top five. I need to take out, I'll take out, what did I tell Sexy Beast, keep Sexy Beast in there. Sorry, top. Top five bands. Aerosmith, number one, but Aerosmith, while they were still taking drugs, there's a kind of defined period between Aerosmith being great and Aerosmith being less than great. Um, Fleetwood Mac, ACDC, but again, I have to be very specific in the Bond Scott era. Um, oh, this is where it gets difficult. Danish band called Volbeat that nobody will have heard of. Um, probably the only nod to current music because I stopped listening to music about 1985. So Volbeat are my current one. And who else? Are Queen. Queen. Beach holiday or city break? Beach holiday. When you've been away with journalists? No comment. <laughs> what's, what's been the most outrageous night you've had abroad covering football oh god oh jesus um wow wowzers there have been so my favourite one and probably the, the, the one that I can tell without <laughs> inviting police investigation um 
was the night we had in Chicago, we went Celtic's pre-season trip, and Hugh Keevans, again, one of my idols, Hugh once nearly got me sued by Frank Warren, but that's, that's another story. We had a great night in Smith and Walensky's uh, overlooking the river in Chicago, and after about three bottles of red wine, and Smith and Walensky's is kind of based on kind of rat pack era, so it's the way these old kind of restaurant uh, entertainment venues were back in the day. Last recollection was after the third bottle of red wine, both of us dancing on the table, singing My Way, or um, little old wine drinker, me it actually was, it was uh, Dean Martin. And I kind of just guided, like a robot, just guided Hugh out the door and sent him on his way. And to this day, we still reminisce. Some others, just as a young journalist, that you look back now and go, "What the hell were you doing?" But it 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 was it was great fun. Fortunate to go to a lot of cities, go and see a lot of beautiful stadiums. Fortunate to have um, Tony Haggerty as a friend in the back of some of them. And uh, if Tony's watching. Don't worry, I'm not going to say anything. Last two questions: Five aside's team of journalists you've worked with. Who gets in it? Oh, journalists I've worked with, right. Oh, God, five. Jeez. Thomas Jordan, known him since I was 16. Utterly, utterly mental and good to see him now. If he's not in charge of Aston Valley, he'll probably be within a matter of uh, months. Tommy Jordan. Um, Hugh McDonald, definitely. Um, this is too difficult. There's too many in there. Jim Reynolds, because he taught me the love of um, boxing. Ian Scott, because he was my first sports editor and, and, and gave me my job. Um, and now I'm going to really start to annoy or upset a lot of people because I've got one one name left. Wow. <sighs> Daryl King. Um, again, like Tommy, we worked together at the evening. He was at the evening times. I was at the Herald. You imagine... Uh, working in sports journalism in the sister or partner paper of the Evening Times with the name Daryl on a Monday. Uh, and there were times when we'd get a phone call through reception and I would pick up the phone and go, hello, Herald Sport, and take this absolute tirade from a girl that Daryl had clearly been in a relationship with and, and go, right, right, you've got the wrong Daryl. So um, th those were great days. Um, once went to New York with Daryl and for his, was his 21st? Chaos, absolute chaos. Um, and they convinced themselves that we'd get booted out of the hotel. But there was a guy, there was an old travel agent called Harry Hines who did all the media's travel. And wherever you were going in the world, you'd travel via Antwerp to save about 27 quid. <laughs> so needless to say, we got to New York. First time two idiots like us had been to America. And... Um, got there to the hotel and they said, right, you're only here for the one night, your other three nights are at our sister hotel, basically a flea pit down the road. So, of course, after night one, Ken Gallagher and Alan Davidson, another doyen of, of journalism, um, and Fanny put Jim Train on that list. Jim was a big help to me, even though he made me scared of him. Um, but long story short, they were continually trying to phone the hotel that we were staying in um, and had convinced themselves that we'd been kicked out of New York to the point where by the time we got back 
we had everybody saying, so what happened? How Nobody has ever been kicked out of America for, for a night out. How bad must it have been? So a bit of a long-winded story, but um, yeah, journalism was, was great fun. And those are the stories that are probably fit for public consumption. You mentioned... Until, until my book, then they're all fucking getting it. You mentioned Jim Trainer there. Now, not getting into yeah. the politics of Jim I, or anything. I thought I would just drip that one in for you. Not going to get into the politics of Jim or whatever, but just in terms of a guy, what's he actually like? Because obviously he's got this persona through working with Rangers, through working at the record for many years. What's yeah. he actually like? Because obviously I don't know him personally. Listen, I have never um, worked for Jim. And I think people... I've seen both sides. I've been lucky. I, I was 16 when Jim was chief sports writer of the Herald. And Jim, at that point, was, was, a, was a terrific writer, really formidable writer. And he was one of the other reasons that I got into journalism, because he was terrific. You'd see him on TV. and um, He was a big help to me. Yes, he could be formidable. And I, again, I think there's, there's two things. There's the perception around Jim whether you like it or not. And I, and I know enough people to have worked with him to have seen the, the, the wrong side of him. But he was addicted to his work. He loved football. He loved journalism. Um, and for somebody like Jim, the thought of not having that anymore, I, 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 I just, I, I can never imagine it. So I actually feel a bit sad. Not, not, not sorry, because Christ Jim will not want any pity, but I feel sorry that somebody has put that much into journalism and that much into his profession to deal with some of the nonsense that you have to deal with. Now, there's always going to be rivalries. There's always going to be people that you don't take to. I just, I just hope at the end of it that he remembers the good stuff, remembers the impact he had, and, and that people remember him for the formidable um, journalist that he, that he was. So I know that's probably an unpopular view, um, but I don't care. It's, it's, it's my experience, Jim. I've, I've genuinely never had a cross... Well, I've had many a cross one with them, but, but again, I think the important thing is to hold your own. I'd like to think he respects me, um, but I've got a lot of time for him. And again, the person that he probably has to be to do the job as he sees it will be different to the father, the grandfather, the husband that, that goes home at night. And I think separating the two is important. I um, yeah, Jim was a journalistic titan who who taught me a lot. I want to talk about another character. I said the last question we coming soon, but that's all right. We can go all day and do this in two parts. <laughs> you mentioned uh, Jim Trainer, so I've got to ask about another character who worked with Jim, obviously on on the radio a lot of times. Chick Young, what's Chick like to work with? Chick. Oh, well, you talk about the early career in journalism again. One of the first trips I ever had was Kilmarnock um, under Bobby. And I think, was it Kaiserslautern? I went to Germany. That was my first trip. And uh, Chick looked after me. And you can you can take that stuff for granted. Like, nobody would want to do anybody a bad one. But people at Chick would go out of his way. I knew who he was. He had no idea who I was. But first trip, he made a point of coming over. How you doing, son? Anything I can do to help, let me know. Um, and I've kept in touch with him, obviously, appears on the... He, he's one of the people that we take for granted. And if we're all honest, when we listen to him, we have a wee bit of laugh with him 
and sometimes at his own expense because he's you know that caricature that he'd become with with only an excuse. He's somebody that we should cherish because he loves football. He's helped put a smile on a lot of people's faces, and he's still doing it. I mean, I don't know what age Chick is, but he'll certainly be mid to late sixties by now, and I hope we're not doing him a disservice. Could be any age, could be eighty-seven. Um, he's just looked that way for forty years. Um, but the thing about Chick, he loves football. That that's his oxygen, and I hope he keeps taking that oxygen for as long as he can because Scottish football is a, a funner place with him around. It's, it's interesting how but he needs to sort that hair out, though. I mean, he's I mean, he's been trying that for decades, and it's getting more and more ridiculous. What colour is it? Oh, blonde. <laughs> it's like a, I, I dyed my hair once to go to Australia and didn't realise that the peroxide would go yellow. It's kind of like that, and nobody's told him. Sorry, check. It was only a joke. I said nice things. It's, inter- it. it's interesting when we talk about these kind of characters: Jim Trainer, Chick Young, Hugh Keevans. They feel like they've been around forever, but I mean that in the nicest possible way, in the sense that when they eventually stop con- contributing to Scottish football, I'm glad you said stop strange. after a pause there. <laughs> it will be strange though when they when they stop contributing to Scottish football, in the sense that. They've been around for what seems like forever, but they're still, even now, there's still three characters that gather a lot of attention, despite being a lot older than when the ones started. Well, you know what? I, I watched the, the 91 final last last week, and the thing that struck me above all was just how much Jock Brown had played the soundtrack to my, my youth. Whether it was watching highlights on BBC, STV, listening to Sports sound, eh, no, it wasn't at the time, it was a super scoreboard when you had all these great personalities. And you could only add that, in fact, you won't remember it. You could only listen to the last five minutes of the first half because of the broadcasting rights. You could only listen to the last five minutes of the first half and then the second half. Jock Brown is a soundtrack to our lives. Um, I made the point and I was, um, I was reminiscing a wee bit. But you look at some of those those greats, Archie McPherson, Archie's what, 84, 85 now, is as sharp as a tack, is as bright and as eloquent and as articulate as he was in his, in his prime. And we have to cherish people like that. I mean, the, the likes of Archie, and I know he could be quite curmudgeonly, especially to some of the media, but people like that need to be recognised. I mean, we've had Arthur Montford, another, another great who should have been um, celebrated more than he was. We've had from Crampsy, and we've been we've been blessed with some of the great voices uh, of Scottish football. And there are a generation. Hugh is, Hugh is now the the grandfather of of Scottish football broadcasting and absolutely reveling in it. And we do it if nothing else at this period. We need to cherish those people and cherish the fact that not only they're still with it, but still still contributing, still active. And that that inspires me as a. 41-year-old now hurtling towards middle age. <laughs> the last question I've got for you, Daryl, I've really enjoyed this is... You said that 20 minutes ago. I know. That's <laughs> <laughs> the nature of this show. <laughs> um, Good, keep it going. If you could pick any manager who Scottish who worked in Scottish football, crucially, past or present, if you were a player, who would you play for and why? It's got to be Scottish mm. football linked to. Jim McLean. Because, listen, as much as I would have loved to have experienced what it was like to be 
at the feet of Jockstein or at the feet of, of Sir Alex Ferguson. Again, I'm, I'm always attracted to the slightly left field. And as much as Jim McLean was, in his own right, uh, revered as a great, there's also something a bit unhinged about him. And I'm fascinated by that. And, and obviously the play um, that's been done in, uh, in his honour, and, and I don't think it's keeping too well just now, but when you when you look back to what he did, and I, I wasn't fortunate enough to um, have dealt with him as a journalist. I was around there when, when Digger Barnes got lamped by him, but um, I would have been fascinated to have seen what that dressing room dynamic was like. The, the motivation or the unique motivational tools. But within that torture, there was a genius and a genius that, let's not forget, helped Scotland, helped Sir Alex Ferguson make his way, turned down the chance to manage Rangers because he felt that he had a bigger job to do at Dundee United, and who'd taken a modest group of players and turned them into European giants. Let's not forget what they did. Those victories against Barcelona, that. And I remember as a young kid, was it 87? So they'd been eight years of age. The, the trauma of... Um, Stockholm and uh, and obviously the the Roma match, just great and great historical period for Scottish football, but but recent enough for me to still have a kind of vague recollection. So for for many reasons, Jim McLean. Jim, as I said this to Craig Brown recently, just to finish on Jim McLean, I said to Craig that you get the praise of Sir Alex Ferguson, you get the praise of Jock Steen, Matt Busby, Bill Shankly, Walter Smith. Even Craig himself, he gets a lot more recognition and credit now. For, you realise we've talked so long that the darkness is setting in. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm stuck. I can put the light on, but we're nearly done. Um, I've seen, obviously, Craig gets a lot of good recognition now, can, and I think with hindsight for what he did with Scotland, but in terms of oh. John McLean, see, I find that I'm 24 and I find that the younger generation don't obviously talk about Jim McLean a lot. They talk about historic managers, as the guys have mentioned, but he's not really mentioned an awful lot. And for me, that's quite sad because as someone who loves football, when you look back, as you said, on what Jim McLean achieved, it's absolutely yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. And and listen, Jim fascinates me. And at this point, I should probably, in fact, I should uh, make reference to the fact that Craig Brown is one of my favourite people in football. And just as you said... Mercifully, now he is being recognised for the job that he did because a bit like Andy Roxburgh, he was he was decried for being a teacher and 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 a diff- because he wasn't part of the traditional football set. He was a football guy right back to his Clyde days. When I think famously him and Eddie Hunt are the aforementioned. It was a Scottish Cup game. They literally started rolling down the the terrace and fighting with each other because they were that passionate about the game. I have never met a more passionate guy um, in football than Craig Brown. I think there's a lot of ladies who've probably never met a more passionate guy than Craig Brown, but that's maybe for another podcast. <laughs> Should I tell that stuff? Let's just say, I, in my early to late 20s, a bunch of us went down um, to see Craig and to get a night out in Preston when he was... Preston North End manager, um, and I'm not telling tales to say that um, it was heralded as the G-string capital of Great Britain at that time. And let's just say Craig Brown, I think, owned Preston at that point. It was incredible that even then, um, he, he, he helped shape the career of Billy Davis, who, again, 
a coach that I got a lot of time for. I think paranoia has long since gotten to Billy, sadly. But Craig Brown took a team to the World Cup, um, assisted, and I think he'll continually tell you, took a youth team uh, to the World Cup final in Chile, I think it was, under 16. Um, this, this is a football guy who, to the very day, if you phoned him up now and asked him to help out, whether it's a charitable event or a media event, he'll be there. He's the most reliable um, and adorable uh, figure in Scottish football that, that I've ever met. And it was shameful of me not to have recognised that until you brought his name into the conversation. So I apologise and hope that I've tried to atone. And he should also be grateful that I've not told that Preston, that, not told that Preston story in full order. <laughs> Daryl, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining me. I've really enjoyed this. Excellent. Keep doing what you're doing. Stay safe. And uh, look forward to seeing what else you've got lined up for us. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave